This daily devotional is brought to you by Hope PR Ministry. We would love to hear from our listeners, and we ask that you would contact us at hoperwc at gmail.com with any feedback or questions you might have. We hope that you are edified by this content. The following podcast is part five of five of Professor Hanko's series, God's Everlasting Covenant of Grace. We begin the podcast a few moments into the lecture. And the doctrine of the covenant, and especially in holding the truth that infants must be baptized, the Reformed churches were at a great loss to explain how that could be possible. You must remember, of course, that the problem is basically rooted in the fact that, generally speaking, the truth of the covenant was said to be that the covenant is an agreement or a pact or a contract between God and man. That was the underlying problem. Nevertheless, because that underlying problem had its implications, the Reformed churches struggled with the question, why are all the infants of believers to be baptized when not all of them are saved? Or, to put it differently, when election and reprobation run also through the line of the covenant and cut through the children of believers, why must they still all be baptized? That question created untold controversy. And in fact, the controversy came to a head in the Netherlands in the late 1930s and in the early 1940s, when at the Synod of Snake Utrecht in the Netherlands in 1944, Dr. Klaas Skilder was deposed from office by the Synod of the Gereformeerde Kerken, the Reformed churches and began what are now known as the liberated churches. Although the whole problem came to a head in the late 1930s and early 1940s, the question was a subject of no little controversy for over a century. I mentioned last week an important book on that subject it is one of those books that remains untranslated, although it would be of extraordinary value to us. The title of the book is A Century of Strife Over Baptism and Covenant and is written by a Dr. Smilda. An excellent book written by a man who takes a correct position, in fact, on the truth of the covenant. Generally speaking, to solve this problem of why all infants are to be baptized when only some of the infants of believers are actually saved, the Reformed churches found two answers. There were some more answers of one sort or another, but not significant for the history of the Reformed churches. Two answers were given which had their effect upon subsequent church history and subsequent development of the doctrine of the covenant. One answer was given by Dr. Abraham Kuyper. His answer was, we baptize all the children of believers in their infancy because we presuppose that they are regenerated. And he developed the doctrine of presupposed regeneration. Believing parents, not only, but also the Church of Jesus Christ, must presuppose in its baptism of infants that all of them are regenerated, contrary to the fact, of course, that we know, as a matter of fact, that they are not we must presuppose that they are. That view was not generally accepted in the churches because it proved to be a view that in fact was untenable. 
Dr. Abram Kuyper was faced with the question that many who were baptized grew up so that they, in their early years, not only, but in their teens and early 20s and even 30s, manifested that they were wicked. They did not give them any evidences of regeneration. In order to explain that, Dr. Abraham Kuyper developed a rather strange idea concerning regeneration. He said that it was possible for children of believers to be regenerated even in infancy, but that the seed of regeneration would lie dormant, sometimes for many years. And only after a rather lengthy period of time would the seed of regeneration spring to life and begin to manifest itself in the life of one in the church. He even used the illustration of some seeds of wheat that were discovered when the pyramids in Egypt were opened up. And there was found in these tombs of the pharaohs grains of wheat and other grains which had been buried with them, who had lain dormant in these pyramids for several millennia, but which seeds, when planted in the ground and irrigated, came to life and produced crops. So Dr. Abraham Kuyper said, it could be with the seed of regeneration. The difficulty with that view was that it all but destroyed discipline in the church. Families did not dare to discipline their children severely, nor did churches dare to exercise discipline over wayward young people in the church because the seed of regeneration might be dormant in them and they would be actually, in fact, disciplining someone who was a regenerated child of God. The irony of the situation is that those who maintain a different position, namely that the promise of baptism is general, accuse us of presupposed regeneration. I have heard it myself many, many times. You undoubtedly have heard the same. You people believe in presupposed regeneration. I'll be coming back to that in a few moments. I want it to be very clearly understood that the Protestant Reformed churches, and so far as I know, no one in them holds to the doctrine of presupposed regeneration. We not only do not hold to that doctrine, but our view of the covenant does not even approach that doctrine. We throw that doctrine from us. We throw it from us as detestable because it runs contrary to the clear testimony of Scripture that God establishes his covenant with believers and their elect See. The other view was the view, of course, of Dr. Skilder that was held widely in the Netherlands and even to a certain extent dates back to the upskating, the separation of 1834 under de Kock and Van Ralty and Brummelkamp and the rest. That view is, as we have already defined it, that we baptize all the children of believers because the promise of baptism belongs to all the children who are baptized in the sacrament of baptism. At that moment when the sacrament is administered in the congregation, that child receives for himself the promise of God the promise of the covenant, I will be your God and you shall be my child. However, because obviously even the liberated cannot maintain the position that all the children of the covenant are saved, the promise of the covenant is conditional. 
while all have the promise, nevertheless, not all receive the promise in the full inward sense of the word because the promise has conditions attached to it which conditions must be fulfilled if that promise is to be given in all its fullness. Dr. William Hines, who is really the author of that view, as I said last week, insisted that the baptism form itself taught that doctrine. I don't know how he ever came to that, but that's what he said. And I'd like to quote that section of the baptism form to show you how completely wrong his interpretation of the baptism form is. I refer to the didactic part of the baptism form, that is the first part where the doctrine of baptism is defined. And by the way, our baptism form, in my judgment, is an outstanding form. I would say the most beautiful liturgical form that we have in our churches. It's very old, too. Dates back to the early years of the history of the Reformed churches in the Netherlands. But let me read that section. I refer to where in the first column you begin to read, Secondly, Holy baptism witnesseth and sealeth unto us the washing away of our sins through Jesus Christ. Therefore we are baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. But when we are baptized in the name of the Father, God the Father witnesseth and sealeth unto us. And this is the promise then, said Dr. Hines, which all children receive at the moment of baptism. God says to every child, he witnesses and seals to them, that he makes an, an eternal covenant of grace with us, with them, and adopts us for his children and heirs. He does that, said Hines, every child. And therefore will provide us with every good thing and avert all evil or turn it to our profit. And when we are baptized in the name of the Son, the Son sealeth unto us, and every child that is baptized, that he doth wash us in his blood from all our sins, incorporating us into the fellowship of his death and resurrection, so that we are freed from all our sins and accounted righteous before God. That is the promise that comes to every baptized child. God frees him from his sins, and God accounts him righteous. But then you come to the Holy Ghost. In like manner, when we are baptized in the, in the name of the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost assures us by this holy sacrament, and then notice the language here, that he will dwell in us and sanctify us to be members of Christ, applying unto us that which we have in Christ, and so on and so forth. Applying unto us. That, says Hines, proves the general and conditional promise of the covenant. And he hung his argument particularly upon the future tense that he will dwell in us. When the child is baptized, God establishes his covenant with that child. And Christ seals to that child that he washes him in his blood. But, says Heinz, only in the future will the Holy Spirit sanctify us and apply unto us that which we have in Christ, and so on and so forth. And then this is what he put in, of course. If one fulfills the conditions of the covenant. So that future tense, said Dr. Heinz, is what proves that the covenant is general and conditional. Now, 
That is one of the flimsiest arguments it has been my experience to come across in the defense of the truth. Nevertheless, it was only within the last two or three weeks that I read in one of the papers of, I think it was the Reformed Churches of Australia, Sister Churches with the Liberated, although I can't recall, that that argument of Heinz, based on the baptism form, was valid, and that it was precisely what the liberated mean. I think that that argument, uh, that the weakness of that argument is evident to you all. So the question comes up, if we as Protestant Reformed churches who hold to a doctrine of the covenant believe that all the infants of believers are baptized, on what grounds do we baptize all the infants of believers when we know that election and reprobation run through the lines of the covenant? That's the question which I want briefly to answer tonight. There is a much more detailed answer that I give in my book, We and Our Children, which, is, uh, which was written originally as the Reformed answer to the arguments of the Reformed Baptists. Baptists have no covenant. Baptists know nothing of a covenant. Reformed Baptists included. I say that, and I underscore that, because countless Reformed people claim they can find a comfortable home in a Reformed Baptist church, particularly if the minister of a given church happens to be a strong Calvinist. Anyone who sells the Reformed faith for a mess of Baptist pottage cuts the heart out of the Reformed faith, repudiates it and denies it and commits a dreadful sin before God and his Christ. The Baptist position is no option for a Reformed believer. It's for that reason, too, that I find it almost incredible that people, both in Reformed and Presbyterian traditions, can cooperate with and have fellowship with Baptists. The Banner of Truth, for example, the Banner of Truth Trust, and the Banner of Truth Conferences which unites in one organization and does a tremendous job of publishing old Puritan literature, is composed of Calvinistic so-called Presbyterians and Calvinistic Reformed and Baptists. And if you ever go to a, a Banner of Truth conference, you will soon discover that the question of infant baptism is out of bounds. Anyone invited to speak at a Banner of Truth conference is duty-bound not to bring up the subject of the covenant and of infant baptism because it is offensive to the Baptists. But Reformed people have no problem associating with them, holding conferences with them, preaching on each other's pulpits, and in general agreeing on many of the doctrines of the truth, as they say. That's a sellout and does nothing but harm to the cause of the Reformed faith. If you would ask me, therefore, what is the reason why we as Protestant Reformed churches baptize all the children of the covenant, my first answer would be, of course, well, simply because of the fact that the Scriptures require it. If we do not baptize all the children of the covenant, and I mean all the children of the covenant, 
we are disobedient to the command of Christ. And in disobedience to the command of Christ, we bring down Christ's wrath upon the church. We hold to Christ's command that all the children of believers must be baptized because we hold to the clear scriptural teaching that baptism has come in the place of circumcision as the sign and seal of the covenant, and that because the covenant is one, the promises of the covenant are one, the character of the covenant is the same, the sign and seal of the covenant refer to the great promises that remain true throughout all the ages of time. I'm not going to argue that tonight. The arguments are presented in detail in my book, We and Our Children, which book, by the way, has had some influence in, in Baptist circles, too, you might be interested to know. Uh, for one thing, it has stoked up some considerable interest, and a couple of books that I'm aware of have been written as attempts to overthrow the arguments that are developed in that book. For another thing, I've had correspondence with some Baptist ministers over the years, a couple of whom at least have said to me that they were on the verge of being ordained as ministers in Baptist churches, but having read the book, they could no longer in good conscience do that, and so they went back to the seminary and became ministers in, I think, in the instances to which I refer in conservative Presbyterian churches that hold to the doctrine of baptism. I understand the book is also going to be translated into Russian, and in fact the translation, I understand, is completed, but the publishing of it is not yet finished. The case for the baptism of believers in the second place is that infants as well as adults, are incorporated into the Church of Christ and the Covenant of Grace. I quoted that Lord's Day last week, and I'm not going to refer to it again. The objection that has always been raised is this. How can you say that when not all infants are incorporated into the Covenant of Grace and are members of the Church of Christ? The same thing is true of the baptism form, of those two sections in the baptism form to which I called your attention. The one, the question that is asked parents, do you believe, just a moment, whether you acknowledge that although our children are conceived and born in sin and therefore are subject to all miseries, yea, to condemnation itself, yet that they are sanctified in Christ, and therefore as members of his church ought to be baptized. The question is yes, but not all children are sanctified in Christ. And therefore, how can infants be baptized on the grounds that they are sanctified in Christ? That is the overriding question. The answer to that question is that we must look at the covenant from the organic viewpoint, as Scripture does. Again, I haven't got the time tonight to go into that subject in detail. And again, I refer you to my book, We and Our Children, if you are interested in pursuing that line of thought uh, uh, somewhat more in detail. The point is this, very briefly, that in all God's dealings with men, 
It never deals with men as individuals, but always deals with them in all the relationships of life which constitute a part of their own walk in the midst of the world. He does that with believers and unbelievers. He deals organically with wicked, and he deals organically with righteous. Although a man is certainly judged on the basis of his own sins, and the judgment Christ pronounces from his great white throne is a judgment for what every man has done in the body, nevertheless, what he does in the body, his own deeds are always judged by Christ in connection with all the relationships of life in which he stood to his family, to his nation, to his friends, to his church, to his race, and to the human race as a whole. Only God judges, and only God judges righteously. And all that a man does is judged on the basis of all the relationships of life that he experienced while in this world. The wicked are condemned on that basis. The righteous are saved organically. That organic conception is so crucial to an understanding of the Reformed faith that it is my judgment that you cannot get a hold of what is the real genius of the Reformed faith, the real heart and core of the truth of the Reformed faith, unless you understand that concept, concept which, if I recall correctly, we discussed in some detail in a class of, uh, a few years ago. In the old dispensation, God dealt with Israel as a nation, a nation that was a picture of the church of Jesus Christ. All in that nation had to be circumcised and bear the mark of the covenant, although we know that the elect were only a small remnant and that the reprobate were far and away throughout all Israel's history, the majority. You cannot read the prophets. Not only the major prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel, but the minor prophets as well, without understanding that God always dealt with the nation as an organism. How else are you to explain the fact that you can find passages in Scripture where in one verse God is speaking in fury against the nation and coming to the nation with threats of the most terrible judgments that shall befall them. And in the very next verse, still speaking to the same nation, is speaking of gloriously beautiful and wonderful promises. Can't explain that unless you look at it and at the nation from an organic point of view. God dealt with the nation as a whole. God still deals with mankind as a whole, and particularly now, because the nation of Israel was a picture of the church in the new dispensation, God still deals with the church as a whole in an organic way. What does that mean from a practical point of view? It means a, a number of things. We make a distinction between what we call the sphere of the covenant and the covenant itself. Sometimes, instead of using the term sphere, we speak of the fact that there is a historical manifestation of the covenant, a historical working out of the covenant, within which is the real establishment of the covenant with believers and their elect seed. The liberated mock us for that. I read just this past week of a liberated author who mocked the PRs for their distinction between a broad sphere of the covenant 
and the reality of the covenant which God established with the elect. But that's not so strange. After all, isn't it true that we speak of Christendom and that the Bible itself speaks of Christendom in the broadest sense of the word, which includes the entire church, all of that which calls itself church, all of that which goes under the name of Christian. And yet we know that within that broad sphere of Christendom, of Christianity, as we call it, of the churches that call themselves Christian and Church of Christ, there are only very few who are true churches and have the mark of marks of the true churches, of the true church of Christ, and maintain the truth of Scripture in all its purity. We make use of those expressions all the time. God realizes his covenant between the broad historical development of the covenant through the history of the world, just as he did in Israel in ancient times. There are, as you all know, many figures of that in in creation. There is, for example, the illustration of a wheat field, which a farmer diligently and carefully cultivates and in which he plants his seed. And when he does that to his field, he does so in the hopes of a harvest. If someone who is born and raised in the city and who knows nothing about farming should come, And the farmer says to this visitor from the city, come with me, I'll show you my wheat field. And they go out to the back 80 or whatever it is. And the visitor from the city looks over the field and says, you call this a wheat field? Man, I don't know why you call it that. It's full of weeds. It's full of thistles. It's full of pigweed. It's full of dandelions. It's full of all kinds of noxious weeds that are never any good. And if the visitor from the city would think about it a little bit, he might even say to the farmer, you're really quite a fool, you know, because you spend a lot of money on fertilizer when all you're doing is fertilizing all these weeds. And you spend a lot of money on irrigation and all you're doing is watering all these weeds. The farmer will say, you don't understand very much about farming, do you? I know those weeds are there. I know they are there. I know that they grow faster because I put fertilizer in the soil. I know that they are watered as well as the wheat by the irrigation. Nevertheless, I raise the wheat and the weeds for the purpose of the harvest of the wheat. That's a scriptural figure, by the way. You can find that scripture, that proof in scripture in Hebrews 6, for example, as well as Isaiah 55, where in Isaiah 55, the prophet assures the people of Israel, the word of God never returns void. That's the way God works in time. In the broad sphere of the covenant, God causes the rain the sunshine of the preaching of the gospel, the administration of the sacraments, Christian education, and all the godly influences that are present within the sphere of the covenant to come to all, elect and reprobate alike. Now a couple of things about that that I want to emphasize. In the first place, You must remember that God doesn't do that simply because he has no choice in the matter. The farmer might say, I know I fertilize weeds and I know I irrigate weeds, but I can't help it. The weeds are there. 
and I cannot separate the weeds from the wheat prior to the harvest. I have to wait till the harvest for that. I have to put up with the fact that there are weeds there. The farmer may say that. God doesn't. God doesn't say to the church, well, baptize, elect, and reprobate alike, because there isn't anything you can do about it, because that in infancy you can't tell the difference between an elect child of God and a reprobate. So because it's convenient and because you have no choice, baptize both. God doesn't do that. He doesn't work in that kind of an arbitrary fashion. That's what Isaiah means in Isaiah 55 when the prophet says, the word of God never returns void. And that's what Hebrews 6 says too. By means of all those who belong in the broadest sense of the word being brought up and raised within the boundaries of Christendom, God accomplishes sovereignly his purpose of election and reprobation. And when the rain and the sunshine of the preaching of the gospel and Christian education and all the beneficial influences that belong to someone raised in the sphere of the covenant come upon him, that individual uses all these great gifts of God to sin. The nearer he lives to the center of the truth, the nearer he lives to the church where the truth is preached in its purest, the greater are the sins that are manifested when he rejects them all. And through it all, God who accomplishes his sovereign purpose of reprobation and sends those wicked to hell and the unfaithful servants who knew the Lord's will and did not do it. Their judgment is that of being beaten with double stripes. And in addition to that, as Jesus teaches us in the parable of the, of the tares in the field in Matthew 13, the tares serve the purpose to help the wheat, just as reprobation serves election just as the reprobate are the scaffolding which God uses to build the temple of his elect. So that idea of the sphere of the covenant and the covenant itself is biblical, and we must hold to that. Another figure which I find particularly helpful is the figure of a river. It reminds me of time quite a few years ago when the mission work was just starting in Spokane and I was asked to come up to Spokane and lecture in a series of lectures on the doctrine of the covenant. I was talking about this very subject and one rather old lady, she wasn't real old, but she must have been in her 60s or early 70s, which is not real old, was extraordinarily upset by what I had to say because she had been divorced and remarried once or twice, had left the husband that had been most recently married to her, and had lived a life which she now understood was adulterous. And all her children had gone astray. I don't know how many she had with the two or three husbands to whom she was married, but they had all gone astray. She was extremely upset. And she said to me afterwards, visibly agitated, that truth doesn't apply to me at all. And if it doesn't apply to me and I'm a believer, there's got to be something wrong with it. Well, she was so agitated that I didn't make any effort to explain it to her. I told her, just go home and think about it and pray about it and look at some passages in the scriptures which I mentioned. The next day she came, came to the meeting 
with a big smile on her face, her face lit up, and she said, Oh, I understand what you mean. I understand now. The children that the Lord gave me are all these fellow saints in the church. And it made her so happy that I didn't really have the heart to say to her, No, that isn't what I meant at all. But if you consider the church your family, that's fine. That's good. Enjoy your family. That isn't the point, and she had it wrong. It is something like this, if I may use the blackboard for a moment, and use the illustration of the Mississippi River as I so often do. Maybe I'd better get directions right here. The Mississippi River starts in a small lake and some springs in northern Minnesota. And when it begins its journey southward with all its twists and turns, it is at the beginning a small trickle. But as the Mississippi River proceeds southward until it finally empties in the Gulf of Mexico near New Orleans, that river becomes wider and wider and larger and larger and filled with more and more water until by the time it reaches its mouth, it is a mammoth river. Now that's due to the fact, of course, that innumerable brooks and streams of all sorts flow into the river at various points along the way. And some of the rivers that come into the Mississippi are major rivers in their own right, as for example the Missouri River, which drains a huge area in the western part of our country, east of the Continental Divide. The Ohio River comes into it from the east, quite far north, just south of the Michigan border. A major river called the Tennessee comes into it, a bit farther south, all adding to the volume of the river. Now the interesting part of it is that while, say for example, the Missouri River empties into the Mississippi in the southern part of Illinois, the Missouri River is known as the Missouri River from its source in the mountains of western Montana all the way to the point where it empties into the Mississippi, but at that point where it empties into the Mississippi, it no longer is the Missouri River, but becomes the Mississippi. You don't call the waters in this part of the Mississippi Mississippi-Missouri River. You don't call it that. It's lost its identity. Same thing with the Ohio River and with the Tennessee River. At that point where they enter the Mississippi, they lose their identity as a river. In addition to that, although water comes into the Mississippi from many different sources, by no means does all the water that is in the Mississippi get finally to the delta by New Orleans and empty into the Gulf of Mexico. Much of the water that at one time belonged to the Mississippi never finally comes and empties into the gulf. Now we can compare that with the covenant of God, which began in paradise with our first parents, Adam and Eve. All the water that comes into the Mississippi may represent then those nations gathered especially in the new dispensation, but also, also abundantly in the old dispensation, from all the nations of the earth. Rivers from other nations flowed into the covenant that first of all was limited to Adam and Eve and the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the 12 tribes of Israel and finally the nation. Already in the old dispensation, 
streams of people from other nations became a part of the nation of Israel. So much so that by the time that the Lord was on earth, over half by far of those who called themselves Jews were of heathen ancestry and were not pure Jews at all, descendants of Abraham. In the new dispensation, when the gospel itself goes into all the nations and is the power of God to gather the church from all nations, all of these new generations that are brought into the, into the covenant are so many streams of water that God brings into the covenant of grace. We may distinguish, therefore, between the riverbed in the midst of which the Mississippi flows, which would be comparable to the broad sphere of the covenant, and the water in the covenant, most of which never gets to the Gulf of Mexico, but some of it does. It's always the Mississippi River, no matter what you call it. But in the course of its travel from Minnesota to Louisiana, all kinds of water is lost. Water is pumped out for irrigation. Water is pulled out of the river by the sun. Water is caught in the whirlpools and eddies along the sides of the Mississippi River. Water is splashed out of the river. Much of the water in that river never gets there. What is interesting is that whenever God brings those from outside into the covenant, he brings in generations, not individuals. You know the story of the Philippian jailer. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. And the house of the Philippian jailer was baptized. Nevertheless, the water that never gets to the Gulf of Mexico is comparable to the reprobate seed that belonged to that outward sphere of the covenant in its journey through history, but never arrive at the shores of eternity. But whether all the water in the Mississippi gets to the Gulf of Mexico or not, it's the Mississippi River. even when it includes the water that never gets there. Just as in the historical realization of the covenant, there are many that are not elect and never arrive safely in eternity. That's how God deals with men and with his church. And on that grounds, we baptize Infants. Now, you may think that's still strange, but is it? Is it? Think, for example, of the fact that after all, the sacrament of baptism is a sacrament added to the preaching as a sign and seal of the truth of the preaching. The preaching comes to far more than the elect, does it not? And God wills it so, does he not? because the preaching is a two-edged sword. Why then is it strange that the sacrament of baptism, which signifies and seals the same promise as the preaching, should not be administered to all children of believers? But you can see, too, that if you're going to go the liberated direction and you're going to say baptism indicates that Every child of believers has the promise of the covenant that sooner or later you're going to come up with a well-meant offer of the gospel as well. If it is true to say to a reprobate infant of the covenant, when we are baptized in the name of the Father, God the Father witnesseth and sealeth unto us that he doth make an eternal covenant of grace with us and adopts us for his children and heirs, adopts us, every child, for his children and heirs, and so on and so forth, then that's because God does everything in his power to save that child. 
And it is his desire that every child of believers be saved. Apply that once to the preaching. And you've got the well-meant offer of the gospel. That was what DeWolf did when DeWolf began to teach a conditional covenant in First Church in the years prior to 1953. He didn't talk about baptism so much, but he talked about the preaching. He immediately broadened it out. And the first statement for which he was condemned was not something that had to do with baptism, but had to do with the preaching. God promises in the preaching of the gospel. He was preaching on Romans 1.16. No, he wasn't either. He was preaching on, on uh, the rich man and Lazarus. God promises every one of you who hear the preaching that if you believe, you will be saved. So there's a very close connection, therefore, between the well-meant offer of the gospel and a general conditional promise of the covenant. The Reformed have consistently repudiated that, and we do today as being rank Arminianism and a wrong conception of the covenant that ultimately destroys the covenant altogether. The practical implications of the covenant are outlined, first of all, in the baptism form, in that beautiful section in the didactic part where it says, whereas in all covenants there are contained two parts, so are we by God through baptism admonished of and obliged unto new obedience and all that follows. That's a very beautiful part of it. That's our calling before God. You hear that frequently in church. I need not re, uh, say that again. That's our responsibility as covenant people. In the chapter that was read tonight out of 2 Corinthians 7, it's interesting to note that 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1 actually belongs not with chapter 7, but with chapter 6. The man who divided the Bible into chapters about the time of the Reformation made a mistake there. He should not have started a new chapter with chapter 7. The new chapter starts really with verse 2. Wherefore, this is chapter 6, Come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And here's the covenant, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. That's what Scripture says, is covenant responsibility. I'm not going to exegete that passage, however, tonight. I want to make briefly a couple of other points. To lose the doctrine of the covenant, beloved, is to destroy the antithetical life of the people of God as he is called to live it in the world. The antithesis comes directly from the covenant. God establishes his covenant with us and our children. That means that we are called by God to represent the cause of his covenant in the world and to represent the cause of his covenant in the world means first of all that we are to maintain the truth of the covenant. That's our calling first of all as Protestant Reformed people. It's a glorious, beautiful, marvelous heritage which the Lord has given to us. We must maintain it. 
in all of its truth and purity. And to maintain it means we know it, we understand it, we can defend it, we can instruct others who inquire concerning it. That's our calling. But to represent God's covenant in the world too means that we live in all the relationships of life as a covenant people. You all have probably heard in the last couple of months that Christian education in the city of Grand Rapids, Jerusalem, the capital of the Reformed faith, is going downhill at an unbelievable speed. Christian schools are being closed. Why? Because there is no doctrine of the covenant anymore in the Christian Reformed Church. They've lost the doctrine of the covenant. They don't even care about it. They don't talk about it. And so Christian education falls by the wayside. But what I want to stress tonight is this that the strength of the life of the Protestant Reformed churches rests in their commitment to the doctrine of the covenant. That's true, first of all, of our marriages. You can say what you want. But if we don't maintain a strong doctrine of the covenant, we're going to lose our position on divorce and remarriage. I just got a paper this evening. I haven't even read it yet, although I know what's in it. I don't think I have to read it. In which a minister in the EPC, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church of Australia, is defending vigorously divorce and remarriage and describes our position and criticizes it at length and is distributing the paper in the Evangelical Reformed Churches of Singapore. I got the paper from Singapore, not from Australia. Sharp, severe criticism of our position. I tell you that the relationship is reciprocal. If we don't have a strong doctrine of the covenant, we're going to lose our stand on divorce and remarriage. But if we give up that stand on divorce and remarriage and compromise it, I'll guarantee you we'll lose our doctrine of the covenant. We will. It all hinges on one point only. And that's the point of this paper with an appeal to Jeremiah 19. God sometimes divorces his people, and therefore we may divorce our spouses. I'll tell you this, beloved, that if God ever divorces us, it's the end. We are unfaithful. That's Ezekiel 16. God maintains his covenant. He never divorces his people. What an awful thing if God would say to us, you're not my people. What a terrible thing. If we are to represent that, therefore, we must do everything in our power, in our homes. I mean now husbands and wives to maintain marriages which are pictures. Christ and the church. That doesn't happen automatically. You can't sit back on your haunches and let your marriage drift by itself and expect that's going to happen. Especially not today, where the immorality of our age and the war, the battle that is fought against marriage is dreadful. We have to fight to maintain our marriages as marriages that picture God's covenant. And then husband and wife will dwell together in covenant fellowship. 
because they both love the Lord and they both serve Him in their covenant, in His covenant. And then their life will be a life blessed by God. And the same thing is true with our children. We have a battle on our hands to maintain our homes as covenant homes. And that's not easy today. That means we must constantly teach our children. Constantly. Not only by our word, but by our example as well. And we must teach our children what it means to live as God's covenant people in the world. And we must warn them and say to them, you are born in the covenant that places the responsibilities of the covenant on you. If you are a true covenant child, you must walk in the ways of the covenant. And if you don't walk as a covenant child, you may be in this covenant home. This is a covenant home. And all in it walk according to God's covenant. And if when you become older, a teenager, say, and you will not walk in the ways of God's covenant, you may be here. You may be in this home. Until you repent. And until you're ready to walk as a representative of God's covenant. We must warn them that if they do not show themselves to be covenant children, they may not have the privileges that belong to those who live within the sphere of the covenant. And so we must teach our children that after all, a life of those who belong to God's covenant is a life that is centered in the church of Jesus Christ. The church, the church. That's the important thing. Your life must revolve around the church. The church must be the goal of your life. The church must be the center and core of your life. Because there is the covenant community. And that church, not now as an official work of the church, but as a covenant community, must be diligent to maintain our schools. Thank God for our schools. I know, I know, I know you can always find something wrong. I know our teachers are not perfect. I know our teachers make mistakes. I know all that. We do too. Parents do. We all do. But I tell you, our teachers have a job on their hands. And all the picking and grumbling and griping that sometimes our teachers are subjected to makes what is an extremely difficult task more difficult yet. Support them. Show you support them. Support them when they discipline your children. Support them and encourage them in all their difficult work and maintain our schools. I don't exaggerate when I say it's more important that our schools keep going than that you have all the delicacies available in Myers on your table in the evening. Better that our schools are supported and you fast once a week than that our schools are short of money while you bask in the lap of luxury. There is no reason in our day of affluence why our schools have to run deficits. No reason for that. No reason at all. As I said last year, when Hope School was trying desperately to raise $90,000 if two of you people sitting here would sell your SUVs, there'd be enough to make up the deficit in Hope School. I can't recall that anybody did. Our schools, I don't know how long the Lord is going to give them to us. Not very long, I fear. 
But if we are truly covenant-conscious people who love God's covenant and love the seed of the covenant, then our schools have a high priority in our lives. And that means not just the parents who send their children to school, but the grandparents and the great-grandparents and those whose children are too young to go to school because all the children in the congregation, in that sense the lady in Spokane was right, are my family. And I must answer to Christ someday for their covenant instruction. And if they were not taught in the ways of God's covenant, Christ will require it of me and charge me with unfaithfulness. Those are the areas where the truth of the covenant come home in a very real way. I can only say briefly these things. You've heard them all. Please, 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 not only remember them yourself, but show in the congregation that this is your love and this is your life. Let us close with prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful that through these weeks Thou hast sustained us and been with us and blessed our endeavors so that we may bring this summer's classes to a close in the consciousness that though we have done very imperfectly and though we have sinned frequently, Though we are but weak and frail creatures, thou hast nevertheless taken us more deeply and richly into the truth of thy covenant and into thy own covenant life and into the blessedness of that rich heritage which is ours as Protestant Reformed churches. May we never cease to be thankful for what thou hast given us as churches. May we not take these blessings for granted. May we not scorn them. May we not turn our backs on them. And may we not consider them only to be truths of significance and importance. But may we understand that they are towering truths that require of us covenant faithfulness. Grant us that grace, O God, in our homes, in our churches, in our schools, in our walk in the midst of the world. Bless, Lord, what we have done. Without thy blessing, nothing we do means anything at all. If thou dost bless us, weakest means fulfill thy will. Pardon our sins, remember us in mercy, hear us for thy name's sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode. We encourage you to visit our church, Hope Protestant Reform Church in Walker, Michigan. Our services are at 9.30am and 5pm on Sundays. If you wish to learn more about us, please contact us at hope.rwc at gmail.com and we'll be happy to help with any questions you may have.